Honestly, that was one of the core insights of Heroku when you talk about sort of design insights was developers are people too. Hello and welcome to PodRocket, a web development podcast brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket combines session replay, error tracking, and product analytics to help software teams solve user-reported issues, find issues faster, and improve conversion and adoption. Get a free trial at LogRocket.com. My name is Noel, and with us today is Adam Wiggins. Adam is the co-founder of Muse, Ink and Switch, and Heroku. I'm super excited to talk to him. How's it going, Adam? Hey, Noel. Thanks for having me on. We've got a bunch to talk about. I want to talk about what you've been working on, um, your history, and one of your guys' recent podcast episodes you did on your podcast. But before we get into all that, can you kind of just tell us about yourself, your role, your background, how you found yourself in this space? Sure. Yeah, I consider myself an entrepreneur first and foremost, but if I go to hard skills, maybe I'm a writer, I do product design in the sense of how it works. I do have in the very distant past... I'm now a graybeard by technology industry standards and started my life in the kind of the software engineering world. So I've done a little of all of it, but to me, the jack of all trades, bring it all together and maybe being very early stage, building a business, I get to do a bit of all of it, which I like. So ultimately, I like to build products that make people's lives better. Or I like to build the company and the team that creates that product. The company you're at now, Ink and Switch, were you a co-founder? Were you the sole founder? I'm a big believer in multiplayer. Starting a business is such a hard path. For me, at least, I got to do it together with people. All the really worthwhile things in my life have been collaborations. So yeah, my current venture is Muse, where I have four other great partners there. And then Ink and Switch, I founded with actually some of the same folks that we did Heroku. And then Heroku had two co-founders for. So yeah, I always like to find that set of people that you not only vibe with around a particular problem, but your skills complement each other. And so, yeah, I feel a lot of pride in everything I've created and hopefully all of them reflect my identity, but ultimately it's never just about me. I found it interesting how from the space that they're in, like Muse and Heroku feel like very opposite ends of the spectrum for me. But like, how did you find yourself going from Heroku, which in my head is like technical hosting platform with quality of life tools that makes it easier for devs to deploy to like more productivity software, if you'll forgive the connotation there. Yeah, you could argue it's a little bit of a, a career pivot there. Actually, each of those three points there, Heroku, Ink and Switch, and Muse. So Heroku, yeah, is a cloud platform for deploying web apps, target audiences, developers. Ink and Switch is an industrial research lab with a focus on creative tools and what's the next generation of productive computing look like. And there's a pretty broad set of research spaces that we explore there. And then Muse is an infinite canvas for thinking. And that was actually a spin out of the Ink and Switch research. We were looking into new document types. We think this canvas type that now with Figma and others is becoming much more common. We mm -hmm. actually think this is a really important kind of next generation document type. And we saw an opportunity to build a specific application around that. And so for sure, okay, developer tools, research lab, yeah, productivity software seem like three fairly joint things, perhaps. But to me, it's very logical. They all have this theme of tools, mm. right? I like to help creative people build things. For whatever reason, I've just never been as interested in that end user thing of like shopping or social media or something like that. I really am interested in, let me give you a tool that is, as you said, has great quality of life, hopefully is joyful to use, feels good in the hand, metaphorically speaking, 
but allows you to do your art or your craft or whatever it is and create something. That's what gets me out of bed in the morning. I would speculate that people in this space, I feel like us on the Log Rocket team, like a lot of my coworkers and stuff are in that same headspace. It's a privilege, right? Because we're like creative people that like to create things and we are the target market for these things we're creating. It's like less, I shop on Shopify sites and like, that's fine. But it's like, that doesn't bring me joy in the same way that like I use some tool. I'm like, this makes my life easier. And it's really cool, I think, to be in that process. Yeah. But I certainly know plenty of people in the tech industry that just find it completely boring to build productivity software in general. You think of, I don't know, Microsoft Office or something, and it <laughs> sounds pretty stodgy. Why would I want to do that when I can make games or I could make you know, that next generation social media product or whatever? And that's great. It's good that people have different interests so we can all gravitate towards how we can best contribute to the world. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. When you're vetting these things out, what are you thinking about in that target demographic? What makes a tool kind of a joy to use and something that people will naturally gravitate towards? Yeah. When you talk about tools, which again, you have this fairly indirect thing, you're helping someone create an end thing. It's as much an art as it is a science. And actually, I like that blending of those two things together, where there's this artistic just feelings-based, you, you know what you, you feel it, what is it that makes this tool such a joy to use and allows me to create great things. But there's obviously a very pragmatic piece of it as well, which is a hammer needs to drive in the nail mm. the, or the classic, classic product trope, I guess, which is people don't want to buy drills, they want to buy a hole in the wall, right? You got to solve that problem for them, give them the hole in the wall. But what in the meantime can feel good when you're holding that that uh, drill in your hand. On our podcast, MetaMuse, this is one of our top things is kind of product design through this lens of creating tools, whether it's for developers, whether it's for other kinds of creative professionals, word processors, spreadsheets, that sort of thing. What is that ineffable thing and how do you get to it? To me, it's a, like an infinitely fascinating topic and it's part of why I've been able to devote a 20 plus year career to it so far and, and I'm nowhere near being bored yet. It's easy to curtail every like innovation in the way that we've worked and just like function into this kind of umbrella of product design. Where do you pick out the slices that this yeah. is the area I want to focus on? That these, this is where innovation can happen right now. How do you like hone that down and figure out where to spend your energy? Yeah, that's a great question. And especially in the research world, which is where Incan switches, which is much more rather than thinking what's a what's a startup that we can start charging money for and in six months, it's thinking more, where do we want computers to be 10 years from now, for example? And so you end up asking that exact question very broadly. I do start again from the creative tools and maybe the world that I want to see, right? So part of the impetus for us starting this research lab is that there's this shift in computing that obviously everyone knows about, which is basically mobile devices plus web slash cloud that in the kind of mid 2000s till up until mid 2010s or kind of now-ish took computers from something that you really mostly used for call them productive tasks not that people use them for games and stuff but ultimately when you thought of a computer you thought okay i'm going to use this to do homework or i'm going to do this to do a spreadsheet or something mm -hmm. like that and nowadays using the broad umbrella for computing which includes obviously phones and and tablets and things and smart tvs and so on mostly we use it for communication and messaging we use it for entertainment, Netflix and Spotify and so forth, as well as just being connected to the world, right? That's what kind of news and social media and all that stuff does. Basically, every person in the world owns at least one computer now. And that wasn't true 20 years ago. But then that's shifted exactly, yeah, again, the, what, the, what the use cases are. And so now all the big platform manufacturers, Apple, Google, Microsoft, et cetera, 
of course, the bulk of their revenue, you know, Apple used to be a company that made the bicycle for the mind, tools for creators. That was their focus. That's where all their revenue came from. And then it happened 15 years ago that now most of the revenue comes from the iPhone, which ultimately is more of a end user consumption device, which again is totally fine. It's a great product. But then, you know, we stop and think, wait, who is thinking about making computers better for productivity, for creativity, for art, for science? Kind of not really. It's a bit of an afterthought for the big platform makers. And then it's hard to innovate. Individual apps can do things, but they're on these platforms that end up being more and more optimized for that. So if you start with that, let's say, problem statement, and then you say, okay, well, let's imagine we had as many resources and as many smart people who have put their brains into giving us you know, streaming video and touchscreens and things over the last decade or two. What if we had that same level of resource and thinking that went into like productivity? And I like to even look at science fiction for inspiration. Take like Tony Stark's lab from the Iron Man movies, right? Where he talks to his, yeah, there's like talking to your computer and stuff. That's a little goofy, but he's got multiple displays. They all work together. He can spin things around in 3D and that sort of thing. And that's obviously all Hollywood, but that's not what it feels like to do productive tasks on a computer. What could give us that feeling, but be more real, for example, if you use that lens, that opens just a vast number of, of avenues to pursue. Tony Stark doesn't have to worry about like the file he saved on his Windows computer not being openable on his MacBook. Like that's not a thing. Exactly. A real world Tony Stark lab, he'd be like typing on the computer, like looking at the file and he's like, okay, I need to take it over to my table here. And then he would spend five minutes fussing with AirDrop or something, just trying to get the <laughs> file open on the other device. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Just a quick pause here to remind you that PodRocket is brought to you by LogRocket. LogRocket can help you understand exactly how users are experiencing your digital product with session replay, error tracking, product analytics, frustration indicators, performance monitoring, UX analytics, and more. Machine learning algorithms surface the most impactful issues affecting your users so you can spend your time building a better product rather than hunting through tools. Solve user-reported issues, find issues faster, and improve conversion and adoption with LogRocket. Just to give you one concrete call, like design principle or something like that, I'm a huge fan of Unix, as many kind of developer types are. And even though you don't think of a Unix as being like a modern sense of like good design user experience, because it's primarily not graphical, it actually has these great design principles built into it that are designed to maximize the utility and the user experience of the people who are using it. And so, for example, command line tools with their ability to pipe stuff in and out, and you get this composability where you can have lots of little small, sharp tools, little text-based tools that you can chain together in an infinite variety of ways. That is a really cool principle. I think that principle of composability kind of doesn't matter at all for end user stuff. You don't really want that from your, I don't know, calling a ride share. You don't want it to be composable. You just want to like go through the steps and that's kind of it. But for a tool, you want that. And so coming at it from, okay, right now, for example, we live in this world of really of apps and the apps are all pretty siloed, but the reality is creative people string together lots of different things, whether you're talking about video production, developer tools, writing, whatever it is. You don't use just one tool, you put it all together, but it's actually really hard to get stuff between them. So one topic of research for the lab and, a, and an ongoing question for me is how do we get that Unix composability that was so awesome in the 70s and, and whatever and bring it to modern tools? Yeah. Do you think that we have lost some of that composability in modern tools? A lot of these players are like taking active steps to make it so, you know, you're in their ecosystem. Like a lot of people would point that finger at Apple, like they, they intentionally make it so it's hard to collaborate across platforms because they want everybody bought in. Do you feel that that is a major challenge to overcome right now? 
100%. And there's two forces that are causing that. One is like a very crass, just kind of business, like lock-in, there's value to lock-in thing. Mm-hmm. Put that aside for the moment, though, and assume good intentions from the platform makers or whatever. I think the other reason is really for the target audience, if you're talking about a an end-user audience that are not power users, that are more in a, in a consumption mindset, actually, it's desirable to have the computer be less powerful and less things that can go wrong mm. and mo- mobile design is a perfect example right so here's a place where they got rid of things like minimizing windows or files like there's no difference between minimizing a program and quitting there's not, not even a concept of quitting a program that's actually great for most people who don't have any mental model for what does it mean to start or quit a program they just want to like bring the program up and then make the program go away So in general, I think that's a big win. And I think taking files away, which the cloud and mobile mostly does, is a win for most people in most of these common circumstances. But again, you come to power users, productivity, whether you're editing a video, editing audio, writing, programming, these kinds of tasks, you need the power of things like files and windows, and you need to be able to connect things together. And that stuff, not only are we not investing in it really, we're actually neutering it because that serves the need of serving consumers. Maybe in my dream world, there would be some new operating system hardware platform that would rise up that would be purely for those productive uses, and you no longer need to have that tension between your two target audiences. Now, the reality is it takes millions, maybe even billions, to create a fully featured operating system computing ecosystem today. So we'll see. But this is the sort of things that I spend my days thinking about, for better or for worse. I feel like when people are talking about product design, everyone just like thinks about the like UI plus some extra stuff, like how one interacts with the UI. So I think it is interesting to kind of like zoom out a little bit and talk about these interfaces, like how programs talk to each other, how users interact with multi-step processes to get stuff done. As Muse came to be, were you thinking about these kind of questions actively or was it kind of more just, oh, this seems like a cool kind of infinite canvas implementation. There's some like really nice affordances we've stumbled upon here. Or was it more like, you know, high level thinking at the time? Yeah, I'm a high concept guy. So everything I ever do is guided by those kinds of principles and thinking about, yeah, I guess how I want to see computers be in a way that hopefully not just suits my interests, but also I think is potentially better for humanity in, in the long term. Again, for these kinds of pursuits like art and science, more than maybe some of the other things that computers can do for us. So yeah, when Muse came out of the the research in the lab, so again, Muse Infinite Canvas for Thinking, so it's basically on iPad or Mac, you can put lots of media on a kind of open two-dimensional canvas, you have these nested boards, but I see this as a chance to take some of these ideas, but kind of not need to rewrite the operating system or change the hardware. Obviously, Apple has the best hardware in the world, and while I have some complaints with the operating system, at least within the window that we are given, we can try to make how we think productive computing could or should be. So for example, Muse has a concept of cards that you move around on a canvas, essentially just objects, but very much they're heavily inspired by files, right? Which is you can put, well, in many cases you put actual files like PDFs or just like an Excel file or something like that, but also a link or text or images or video, all of those things can go in there. But very much like the Unix, everything is a file thing and Muse, everything is a card. But now this is the modern version of this. You can move it with your finger on the touchscreen or with your mouse on the computer and you can resize and you can duplicate and you can link them together and you can sort of like have that every card behaves the same 
way. Even a video and a PDF are very different in some ways, but they actually, you manipulate those objects the same way inside of Muse on this open canvas that also offers this infinite nesting that is sort of like a hierarchical file system, but is much more visual and spatial. So we're sort of saying, here's some things that are great about productive computing in the past. Let's use the power of what computers can do now, what they couldn't do even 10 years ago in terms of rendering this canvas or the, the zooming interface or, or just the ability to render high-res video or render, render high-res PDFs and all that sort of thing. You know, in, the, in a file browser, you typically have to, maybe you get a blurry little thumbnail and there's a file name. What is this again? You double-click it. Oh yeah, okay, that one, you close it. In Muse, there's no concept of that. Everything just appears and is rendered. You never open and close. You just zoom freely and navigate around between them. So very much it is a chance to, we saw sort of a use case and a specific need that sort of existed in the world that we thought we could serve, but we're taking these big ideas about what we think computing can be and trying to bake them into the box an app provides you. And there's a lot of limits to that. And sometimes we're frustrated when we hit the edges of that, but we'll take it as far as we can within that so that it's a thing that real people can use now as opposed to a research prototype that's and not something that could be part of your life. We have to work within the status quo of what computing is today. Sure. Do you think that kind of that kind of hierarchical structure, like infinite nesting of data, do you think that that's like an inherently useful abstraction all the time? Or do you think that that is one that older generations think about from these days of navigating file systems and stuff? And they just think, oh, data information on a computer is always in folders and I can infinitely nest them. Do you think that that is inherently like a human way of organizing information? Or do you think that we've just stumbled into it? Yeah, that's an excellent and nuanced point. So this is actually a topic that a lot of people in the human computer interaction, that's HCI, field of academic research have looked into. And certainly there are different types of people. So developers, for example, tend to naturally think in hierarchies. It's not even completely clear which way the causality goes. It may be that the kind of person that naturally thinks in hierarchies is more easily drawn to programming, or maybe it's just the act of programming that kind of gets you thinking in that way, objects that contain other objects. It is the case for sure that people get confused by hierarchical file systems in the classic sense, what, wait, where are my files? There's some really interesting research here. There's a great book called Managing Our Digital Stuff that looks back over a lot of experiments over the years, including BOS had this tagged file system. And a lot of people also have the point of view of like, well, let's just make it like search. Like Google made Yahoo mm -hmm. hierarchical organization irrelevant. Why shouldn't our computers just be like search? Things don't live anyplace. But if you look actually at the psychology of people, and this includes power users who are not necessarily developers, there is something really powerful to having a file or an object or a document, whatever you want to think of that as, it has a place that it lives. It seems to come from our natural spatial thinking and the way our brains evolved, right? We evolved to navigate our environments. Our memories are often very connected to that. There's this whole world of like memory palaces that is all about essentially visualizing, you know, physical places you've been and using that to remember things. And so there seems to be something to the file that's on my desktop or the file that's in a folder on my computer. I understand that in a way that I don't understand something just being in a tagged file system floating in the ether somewhere. And I would argue, actually, the iPhone and in general mobile operating systems have also embraced that, right? It is a spatial setting where your stuff lives in a place. I know that icon is on the third. And yeah, there's search and stuff. But like ultimately, there is a sense of placeness of your home screen and your apps. And I think that actually is a really powerful foundational 
thing. And so Muse is kind of the power user version of that, right? Which is you have this canvas that can stretch in both directions. You can totally freely place things. And then you have the boards are nested. You can think of it as like nested whiteboards or something. That is a more sophisticated thing. You know, it's harder to grasp. It's a more challenging mental model compared to, say, an iPhone. But we're trying to grab the best parts of that kind of spatial reasoning stuff. And again, assuming this is for power users and people who want to invest in their tools, uh, not necessarily a totally casual user, but we're not necessarily expecting you to be a programmer or expecting you to be a graybeard like me that remembers the hierarchical file system. We're trying to get the best parts of those, but bring it into the modern and a more intuitive kind of application. It's always struck me as a little odd, like the desktop on a traditional PC, like has this spatial element, like you see people on their computer, like put folders in specific places on the desktop. And it's always been odd to me, like, why is that the only place that level of abstraction exists? You get that one layer deep at the top. That's the only place you can do it. You know, you can kind of do it on like Mac, like you can move folders around like in the windows as they open. And I think it saves it, but I don't know. I don't feel like most people do that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Mobile does embrace it. Like people have folders. I mean, I'm a psychopath and I like search for app names every time I open them. But again, like maybe I'm that weird programmer. Yeah. I do use search myself quite a bit on my computer, on my phone, et cetera. Weirdly, I think the search actually works better if you know the app lives someplace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe the web is different because it's kind of like all human knowledge. And so you, I think your own stuff, maybe if you even think about objects you own that are in your house or something like that, just you kind of keep track of mentally where they are. You don't need to do that with everything that's on the internet. And again, that's a difference between there's my record collection or my Spotify playlist, and then there's every song that humanity has ever invented. And for some reason, for the first thing, it seems like some sense of it has a place that it lives spatially, even if it's just a position in a playlist, is good. And then for the all music that's ever been created, that doesn't make any sense, just search or whatever. I, I, it, I don't get any value from or any kind of mental affordance by having that live in a particular place. I think music is a good example. Like people's mental organizational model is going to vary like wildly based on the yep. person. So if it's yep. not yet indexed into their model, it's going to like anyone trying to project like, oh, we'll do it by, I don't know, year and then genre and then beats per minute. Like it's not how some other person is going to think of music at all. Yeah. Well, and now you get into a whole other interesting area of HCI and sort of the tools for thought space that we're part of reaching back to Doug Engelbart, who thought a lot about this in the, the 60s and 70s, which is the idea that if we have more and more of these digital spaces, we need to organize them the same way libraries are organized. Should there be someone in an organization whose job is to figure out exactly how to catalog things, whether that's music or documents or your team wiki or whatever? Honestly, I think that stuff is all really totally unsolved. <laughs> yeah. We have some good tools, but in many ways, our multiplayer technology is still pretty primitive and our search is still surprisingly basic when google search is good for sort of all human knowledge but when you come to like let me do a search that's a subset to things that are part of my personal stuff or or my organization that then it gets a lot worse so i think these are still very active problems that we're working on and by the way this is a from use which started life as a personal tool kind of a space for personal thinking through these open canvases now we have a teams product and that massively increases the utility because now it's a shared whiteboard with your remote team and you can work together and develop a document, a design spec or a technical architecture or a planning doc, develop that asynchronously over time or together in real time. But now 
you're in the spatial setting and everyone has their own opinion about how things should be organized. And some people like to be really tidy and things are organized, laid out like this. And other people don't want to be tidy and they just throw it wherever and, hey, I'll search for what I need. And yeah, different ideas about exactly how it should be be sorted. So we're only at the very beginning of figuring out how, especially when you think of pure remote teams, how it is that our vast space of information, and I'm not talking about the whole internet, again, I'm talking about your team space or your personal space or your work group space, that can be organized, searched, accessed, kept fresh. To me, it's it's a really exciting space to be working in because there are, relatively speaking, so few people and teams and designers who are thinking about this, but there's this fast open space that I think is really high impact for, for humanity. When you were thinking about multi-users interacting on the same kind of spatial canvas, did you guys ideate around like, should each user have their own visual representation or should it always be one shared one that, uh, you know, there's some kind of like reconciliation that happens to like, this is the master, but everyone else can have their own kind of unique version of how the data is organized. Did you guys kind of toss that around, play with those ideas at all? Yeah. Funny you should ask about that. That's a whole track of research at the lab, which is, I think, changes over time, especially certainly for individuals, but in a group setting is a really rich area to develop. And this is actually a place where I think developer tools are way ahead of everybody else, right? The Git, GitHub, pull request, diffs and patches, comment threads, basically like code reviews and discussions on a pull request where you're essentially commenting on this, you're commenting on the change rather than on a particular snapshot in time of the code. Mm -hmm. And you can reason in the form of like this timeline of changes this stuff is all, I think, really powerful. And one of the things we believe in the lab is that a version of that workflow should actually be part of every productivity tool. Like writers sort of work this way with Google Docs suggest changes. Lawyers sort of work this way with redlining. The tools are really clunky there by comparison to the kind of the Git developer world of things. And the same, you can make the same thing for you. Yeah, video production, audio production, almost anything where you have more than one person that needs to work on a work product that kind of merging and changing over time and understanding what we're doing together. I think that's just a really important area for software. So then coming to Muse, yeah. So there's obviously the just the basic multiplayer of merge changes together in a reliable way, be able to see, you know, have presence and have a real-time thing if we're all in a document together in a meeting, but also asynchronously, you know, I can come online and I see someone's done a bunch of changes that, you know, while I was away and I can check that out. So even though Google Docs may have set a precedent from that now 15 years ago. Honestly, it's still really hard to do that. There's no good off-the-shelf solutions. Most people roll their own. That's sort of like you almost like the table stakes, just make it possible to work on a shared document. And even that is very far from a cleanly solved problem for the industry. I think that is ideal in a lot of ways. We can each kind of sort our own spaces the way that we want and then put it through a, a lens that lets us see it in the way that we want. There is also a lot to be said about the power of we can see the exact same thing yeah this is why screen share is really useful and even to this day even with something like a google docs figma whatever like multiplayer products sometimes people still screen share okay i'm going to put up the meeting notes so you can kind of see where i am in the document and we can all make sure we're seeing the same thing there's quite a challenging trade-off there but yeah i think again if we think way far out which i always like to do there is this path from right now we're trying to get just that we're all looking at basically the same thing technology to we here, I mean, as an industry, make that like work pretty reasonably well. 
But I think once you get past that, you start to get into, okay, obviously there's basic things like, I don't know, my vision isn't as good. I want the font size to be bigger. Okay, well, how does that change the flow of the document? How does that change the scroll position? Can we sort of see the same things even though my exact layout is a little different? And that's a very basic change. You can obviously get much more, you can imagine someone's looking at the grid view and someone else is looking at the, the spatial view, for example. Does it get confusing fast? But I think there's a, a positive version of that, which is in that utopian future, however far out it is, that we can create the views we all want on the same data set. We may even be using different tools, right? We may be coming at it from, this is certainly something we see on the Muse team a lot, where we're creating a space where many people from different disciplines can come together, you know, a developer, a product designer, a marketing person, but they all have different preferences, right? The developers are like, can't we just write Markdown and put this in a folder in Dropbox or whatever yeah. or on GitHub? Put it in and Git, the designers yeah. are like, no, 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 let's just do it in Figma. It'll be fun. And people are like, oh God, Figma is so complicated. The marketing people are like, well, look, let's just discuss it all in an email thread. Each discipline has the tools that they love. But I think in the, again, that utopian future would be something where we can have some shared data set. We can all use our own tools, our own preferences for how we view it but be confident that we're we're not working across purposes because we're either using different tools that aren't compatible or we're looking at the data in different ways. So we literally just are literally not seeing the same thing um, and therefore we can't have productive collaboration. So it's going to be a long time before we reach that utopia, but I do believe it is possible. You noted there's like a subset of user-specific traits in a certain display. I think we like you mentioned like font size or being able to view certain colors. So like there's a whole subset of things here that people may want to view data differently. Do you think this abstraction we were talking about before of like hierarchies in data, do you think that that one is one that will always need to be inherently shared for this collaboration to be effective in this utopian world? Or do you think that even that, like the way that the data is structured in a hierarchy, that can differ between users on a project that is being worked on? Well, I do think that for sure you can have some people that care about or get utility from the hierarchical organization and others who just don't care. So for example, using Muse today, a lot of teams use it for planning sessions, for example. Mm -hmm. So there's some people on the team who are maybe the more power users and they really care about, okay, we've got all our planning boards kind of organized here. We've got a link out to our, our master plan for the year, another link out to some ongoing projects, and I'm going to connect them all together in a way that makes it very possible to get a bird's eye view of everything we're doing. Then there's other people on the team who are just like, I don't know, whatever. I just want to jump in the shared document for our <laughs> call. I don't care what it is. Just give me a link. And they literally just aren't even aware of the hierarchy, right? They just copy a URL from the board. You paste it in Slack or email or whatever. They click on that link and they're just there. They contribute to it, maybe drop a few comments, drop in a few files, whatever it is. And then the session's over. They just close the window. So I think there's certainly room for that, which is the degree to which you care about the information architecture can just vary a lot. Now, having really different architectures per user. That's incredibly interesting. And actually it's something we've gotten into. We just did a podcast episode actually on linking where we talked about kind of the history of that, you know, obviously the web and wikis and, and all that kind of stuff, as well as in this tool for thought world, you have more of this kind of linking backlinking thing that you see in Notion and Rome and, and some of these types of products. And when we added linking to Muse, now that breaks the spatial model. And now you can, if you want, just have a sort of a completely different slice of the data by having different links across. Also gets really interesting if the permissions are different, right? I have a link from something on one team I'm on, another link to something that's in my personal space. I actually want to put those side by side 
but maybe someone who's in that same board with me, they're not really going to be able to navigate into this thing that sort of is in my personal space. Again, lots of potential for giving you all kinds of malleability of your own environment and your own data and be able to see that the information and the sphere of knowledge and the way that works for you, but also lots of room to be incredibly confusing. (laughs) I mean, we already had that problem with Google Docs, which is just like you share the link and it's like, wait, no, I'm not shared on that. Oh, did I not put it in the right thingy thing? You're already getting confused in just that very basic thing. I do think it's solvable. And this is why it is such a rich, fertile territory, I think, for people who are interested in this slice of product design, this how it works, and this creative tools thing, I will easily fill a career uh, working on these problems. You've mentioned your podcast a couple of times. I recently listened to the remote work episode. And I think there's kind of some interesting play here. You talked about how in dev tooling, like Git, like we have really good ways to discuss changes as they're happening. We don't have that elsewhere. And I feel like Maybe that's why engineering has, I think, converted to these largely remote teams a lot more easily than other fields have. Do you think that that kind of slow, meticulous capacity to comment and reflect on every change, do you think that that is a unique privilege to engineering that other fields can't always afford that kind of meticulous check every change, make sure everything makes sense? Or do you think it's um, there's like some kind of middle ground there that can be walked? I would frame it a little differently, which is, is it worth being that meticulous. So for example, I mentioned the other great success in the kind of changes as a first class thing is the Google Docs suggest changes. So most professional writers I know just love this, right? If you're working with an editor, copy editor, you can suggest changes without changing the core thing. And then you can comment on those changes themselves, which is sort of like commenting on a pull request. It's much lighter weight, right? You can do it really quickly by just clicking your cursor and start typing you can resolve it and basically accept the change by just clicking a checkbox. So compared to the whole developer flow, it's way lighter weight, but I think it's the right amount of complexity for the needs of that audience. And I would argue there's probably a similar thing for almost any other creative field that you can think of. And each tool maker in that field would need to find what that is. Now, I think there's two layers here, and this is what's making it an especially hard problem and why I think of it as more of a research problem at this stage rather than something a commercial company or startup could really go after. You have the the infrastructure and Git provided that in the developer world. Now, obviously, you know, I'm a fan of, I used Subversion before that and go back in time. I've used quite a lot of revision control, but the decentralized revision control, this includes Darks and Git and Mercurial, but Git, for whatever reason, just just managed to be the success story there, created the infrastructure. Now, the user experience and is certainly the concept of pull requests and that sort of thing, that wasn't part of it, but it was the plumbing, right? How we can like talk about, ship these changes around in a way that's very efficient and quick and individual developers can reason about branches, use it in their own work, even if you're not collaborating with others. And then you layer the whole GitHub world of things on top of that, or GitLab, as you prefer. So I think there's a similar thing that probably would need to happen to see this kind of innovation with changes in other kinds of productivity software. Imagine trying to do this in video software. This is on my mind right now because a colleague of mine were trading some final cut files. And it's like even just making a video, saving it to a Dropbox file and getting someone else to load it is incredibly difficult, right? They're just not made for that. They just assume exactly one person is going to work on it. And what we'd really like to do is I'd like to be able to send a patch. I'd like to send her a patch which says, I think we should add this and this here. And then we comment on those patches. She says, no, that's not quite right because we kind of like solved this someplace else. 
you can't do that. All you can do is at best send a whole video file and you glint at it and scratch your head and go, okay, what changed here exactly? And that's the state of the art in most productivity spaces. But I think it'd be pretty hard to just go and directly put that into a video tool. Maybe you could do that, but you really need the infrastructure. How do you do diffs and patches and change sets for video, which is probably a technically challenging problem. And then what's the user experience on top of that? What do video producers and editors need? Do they need something that's pretty lightweight, more like Google Docs? Or is it a little heavier weight? Or how does the audio and the video changes interleave? Can you do them independently? There's a whole host of user experience questions that I hope some team out there is already working on or, or, or someone will be inspired to. And again, for every domain, architecture, medicine, whatever it is, there's going to be a version of that, I think. Yeah. Do you think that this kind of shift to remote that we've gone through the past few years is forced that a little bit or do you, do you think it was primed to be happening regardless yeah well i guess and indeed coming back to your your note about kind of engineering teams could sort of go remote first and there's probably also a proclivity there which is i don't want to like stereotype too much but if you think of the people that don't want to like go to an office and interact with their <laughs> colleagues rather stay home in front of their computer probably engineers are gonna gonna come to mind more than i don't know salespeople or something there's obviously just such massive utility in remote work right? And that's both for the person who, let's call it the, the worker, you have flexibility in your life, you re regain that compute time. If you have kids like I do, then you know that it's a huge, huge thing to have that flexibility in your life. For the employer, though, it's amazing to be able to hire from the global talent pool. And I mean, the potential economic value that could be unlocked if we really embrace remote work, we basically haven't yet. From my point of view, we've sort of like dipped a toe, but a world where any company can hire anyone from anywhere in the world with ease, both from a legal perspective, a cultural perspective, and a tools perspective, that would be quite something, I think, in terms of, I think we would see that in our global productivity numbers, just a hunch anyways. There's a, a chicken and egg thing there, which is when the tools are good, then it's easier to think, oh, I can make this work. And then, especially if you're forced to, whether it's because of circumstances in your life, whether it's because of something going on in the world, like a pandemic, and you find it works and you go, oh, actually, this works great, actually. Why not do this all the time? Right. It's easy to kind of take this perspective from a whole bunch of levels that like developers are special. We're smarter than everyone else, or we're nerdier than everyone else, or we're more introverted than everyone else. I would pick something like that. And I think there's something to that. But I think, I mean, honestly, that was one of the core insights of Heroku when you talk about sort of design insights was developers are people too. They are not as different as we maybe developers themselves like to think or non-developers like to th you know think as they they look in and try to like fathom what weird magic is going on as you, you write code into a glowing terminal but i think that in many ways there are these aesthetic differences but i think in the end most productive creative knowledge work is more similar has more in common and is just different in kind of some details is the way i think about it so i would feel that developers tend to be more out kind of in front on some of these trends for a whole bunch of reasons. Maybe this is even like a, an opportunity for finding your next business opportunity, which is look at what developers are doing today and think about how that same thing could be brought to other spaces and productivity. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, devs, again, have the privilege of like, we're the ones working on the tools right now because we're the only ones that can more or less. So it's like the tooling for us ends up being nice because we're in that space all the time. Yep. Yep. Because they're, Kind of anything that you're excited about more broadly in kind of the product design, productivity space kind of in the coming year, or even just Muse in particular, anything on the roadmap you're excited about? Yeah, well, I think that the Canvas 
category that I put ourselves in, infinite canvas, I usually put it. I think it is having a little bit of a moment. Apple just came out with their infinite canvas thing called Freeform not too long ago. Uh, lots of other great companies like Obsidian have added that as a feature. More and more companies are making either as a feature or a full-fledged product, something that's this open canvas. And of course, you had that multiplayer aspect. So it's weird to say that I'm excited about something in the near future that's actually the same thing I've been working on for the last <laughs> several years. But in a way, it feels like it's close to a tipping point. Now, whether our big business and product will will be able to capitalize on that or not is to be seen, or that's up to our team to execute on. But again, a huge part of why I'm doing what I do is that I want to see the world and the computing world be different in a particular way. And I think that the canvas is this underinvested in document type is something that was why I was excited to start using in the first place. And it, it feels like it's starting to have a moment. So that's probably top of mind for me right now. We'll get a bunch of links in the show notes so listeners can go uh, check it out. Thank you so much for coming on and, and chatting with me, Adam. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for letting me uh, ramble about philosophy. I know, it was great. That was awesome. Thank you so much.